Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So, welcome back. We're at number 74. And uh, let's just jump right into what we've been driving. So, Sam. Uh, I have a long treatise on what I spent the most time in this week. Before well, I, we get to that, I, I actually spent quite a bit of time. You know, putting, I put more miles on the car I had last week um, than I typically do in a in a normal week as well. Oh uh, yeah, I was gonna say that's what I definitely put on more miles than I normally do. But you probably enjoyed yours more. <laughs> uh, yeah, somewhat. Um, I had uh, the 2018 uh, Ford Mustang GT Performance Pack Level Two. Okay, um, so Level Two means what? So basically, you know, level two, you know, they've had they've had the performance pack on the Mustang available on the Mustang GT, um, actually going back to the previous generation. Um, level two basically ups the ante some more um, and essentially splits the difference between the, the existing GT performance pack, <coughs> excuse me, and um, the GT 350. Um, it's designed, it's set up to be more of a track car. Um, you know, so if you don't want to go all the way up to a GT350, um, but you want a, a really track-oriented Mustang, this is the one to get. I mean, okay, so first of all, I can't understand why you wouldn't want to go to a GT350, but uh, there are probably well, reasons. Well, I mean, you know, it depends on your budget. You know, okay. uh, I mean, right. you know, a GT350 is going to cost you about another ten grand on top of what this one costs. Yeah, but it's still like, okay, so this is a $55,000 Mustang? Uh, this one's for, this one was, uh, 46. Okay. So, wow. The GT 350 is only fit. It only starts at 55. Uh, yeah. Something like that. Somewhere I remember around, being, somewhere in the mid fifties. I remember being super impressed with the value. Um, but the, I mean, so for 46 though, that's gotta be a ridiculously good car for the money. Uh, it is, it, it is, it's really good. Uh, you know, so to, when you get the performance pack level two, you know, the main visual changes are, um, you, there's a, a new front splitter and a new rear spoiler, uh, and the front splitter extends, <laughs> extends out a good, you know, two, three inches from the lower edge of the front, you know, the front fascia. 
and you know so it's it's way out there so you you do want to make sure that you're you know taking some care if you're going up steep driveway ramps and things like that um you know because it will scrub i mean it's got a bit of flexibility to it you know so it's not going to shatter you know if you hit if you hit one as long as you're not going too fast but you you might scrub it if you're not careful um and then you know a rear uh rear lip spoiler on the the rear edge of the the deck and the combination of those two do actually generate some downforce some extra downforce on the car uh i forget the exact number um back last fall when they first told us about it um you know we were we were in the wind tunnel um and i think it generates a couple uh, i think about 100 pounds of downforce at about uh, 70 70 miles an hour something that's, like that which that's, is which yeah. pretty significant that's enough to keep the back end on the ground yeah uh and then of course you also get um a set of uh 19 inch uh, alloy wheels that are unique to the the uh the level two pack uh, with Michelin pilot sport cup Two tires on there, uh, which when they delivered the car uh, last Tuesday uh, or Monday, whatever it was that when they delivered the car, um, it, uh, you know, I took a look at the tires and I looked up at the sky and then I pulled up my phone to look at the weather forecast to make sure there was no rain in the forecast, because these are definitely not tires. You know, the, the ones that were on there, you know, had some miles on them. They had, they had been, you know, they'd been put to work for by somebody. Um, but even, you know, fresh Pilot Sport Cup 2 tires are definitely not wet weather tires. These are these are tires. You want to avoid driving in the rain on these things, because essentially the entire outer half of the tire has very minimal tread grooves, you know, and once they've got any wear on them at all, they're essentially almost slicks. But that's so why they're so good. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think at, at uh, a Gingerman Raceway, um, which is a track, it's a club track here on the west side of Michigan, where, you know, they frequently go testing with, with the Mustangs. You know, a lot, a lot of companies do testing out there, but Ford goes out there regularly uh, with the Mustangs. I think they said they knocked about three or four seconds a lap off with the level two versus the, the standard, the level one performance pack, Just, which is pretty significant. And so, okay, so level two changes, like getting back to that, that's tires. Um, it's not brakes, cool. right? The uh, brakes are already brake, yeah. The brakes are the same. You get the six piston uh, Brembo front calipers, uh, fifteen inch brake rotors or 15, yeah, fifteen inch rotors. Um, you also uh, do get some uh, slightly revised spring rates. Oh, okay. Uh, and a set of the uh, Magna Ride dampers. So that those, will help. That you. makes a huge difference. Yeah, that that'll help you take some time off the lap time. But three seconds around, a, like that's. For most courses, that, that's a significant yeah, I mean, improvement. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like I said, it, it basically it's it splits the difference in lap times between a standard Mustang GT performance pack and a GT three hundred and fifty. Um, so it's you know it's really good, and you know the amazing thing is, and the tires you know are three hundred five thirty seven nineteens. <laughs> so these are you know essentially what they did was they put in the widest possible tires they could that don't ex extend beyond the bodywork yeah like that's what, the i those are like the size of the Countach rear tires from back in the day yeah maybe not maybe well, not yeah, quite yeah. as wide um yeah i think i think the Countach tires were about the same width about 305s and these are 305s around, on all four corners so they're 
Uh, it's the same size on all corners. On 19s. Uh, like that. On 19s. Yes. Jesus. Yeah, back in back in the Kuntosh days, I think they had like 305s or 315s, but you know, they were on 17-inch wheels. These are on 19s. And like and 17s were huge then too. Like most cars oh, had like yeah. 13s or 14s. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was a big deal back in the 1970s when uh, I think the Porsche 930 was the first car to come to market, the first production car to have 50 series uh, tires on there. And those those were on 15 inch wheels. <laughs> you know, and that was like the first generation uh, Pirelli P7. And now, like, uh, yeah, now now I think Camrys have 50 series tires. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most, you know, cars like, you know, most cars like the Camry and Accord come standard with 16 inch wheels, um, you know, and you can get 18, you know, 18s and 19s from the factory, you know, uh, so that, you know, this one's got 19s on it, you know, because it gives enough clearance for those 15 inch rotors, um, you know, but they didn't go any bigger. And, you know, on you can, you know, on other Mustangs, you know, without the performance pack, you can get 20 inch wheels on there. But on the performance packs, they've always limited it to 19 because, you know, as you go bigger and bigger with the wheels, the wheels get a lot heavier. The wheels and tires get heavier uh, and that adds unsprung weight and actually, you know, reduces, you know, makes the generally makes the uh, handling worse. So they've they've always limited the performance packs to 19s. And it's the same thing on the um, I think on the GT350. I think it's also on 19s. Um, and, uh, you know, because that, that gives them enough clearance for those 15 inch uh, brakes on the front, um, but without adding too much extra weight. So, uh, but the, the Magna ride dampers, you know, make a huge difference because, you know, I drove this car from, uh, you know, here just outside of Ann Arbor to Pittsburgh and back. And, you know, it's, you know, that's a remarkably comfortable car to drive in, you know, over that distance. Uh, you know, e even on the, the pavement around here, which is often really horrible, you know, it's, it's not an uncomfortable car to drive that those dampers, you know, no matter what car you put them on, they do an amazing job uh, of providing real time changes in the suspension control, you know, so that even on, on terrible pavement, you can still get uh, decent um, suspension travel and decent ride quality. And then as soon as you start to push into a corner, you know, then it just tightens right up. So they're, they're, they're really phenomenal. Yeah. I think that that's one of the takeaways from everything I've ever driven with the, that technology on it. I was going to say the word magneto rheological because it's yes. just fun to say. That's, um, that's the generic term for it. Yes. Yeah. Well, and every, everything I've ever really driven with, those kind of dampers on it. I'm always astounded by how compliant it is when you consider that it's usually on higher performance cars and that you drive them around and you go, this thing has a ton of capability, but you can totally live with it every day. And that's, that's one of the technologies that has, has allowed that uh, versus the old days where, you know, the cars would just rattle your teeth out. Yeah. Well, you know, they were, you know, for, for those that, that don't know, you know, uh, the magneto rheological fluid is basically a hydraulic fluid that has um, iron particles in a suspension uh, in the fluid. And so when you pass an electric current through it, it changes, it, you know, it aligns the particles and it can, it can change the viscosity of the fluid instantaneously. So you can have it be um, 
you know, tight, you know, you can have it be more viscous and tighten up, you know, it uh, tightens up the damping rates or, you know, you can make it less viscous um, and give it, you know, allow the, the dampers to move more uh, and give you more compliance in your ride. And, the you know, it can change state, you know, in a, about a couple of hundred milliseconds, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and it was originally the, the technology, these dampers were originally developed by um, Delphi back in the late 1990s when it was still part of GM. Um, and I think the first manufacturer to actually use these things was not GM, but Ferrari. Uh, Ferrari's used them on a number of models over the years, and they've been used by, by a number of different manufacturers. Uh, at some point during Delphi's years-long bankruptcy reorganization, um, they spun off that division, and they, it's it, it's now owned by a Chinese company, uh, but it's still based here in Michigan. And they, um, you know, so they they sell those. You can buy them aftermarket as well, um, but it's more complicated to to install them oh, uh, than putting regular dampers on. Oh, now I really want to. Now I really want to. I think you can the buy them aftermarket. Victoria. <laughs> I'd have I to think get, you like, can get a metromarket. Accelerometers and there's there's a lot of hardware you need to do that. Oh yeah, it's not it's not a trivial thing, hmm. uh, but it, it's it's worth it. Um, I mean, if you really want to maximize the performance and still have a, a vehicle that that can ride pretty decently, you know, to be so you can use it as a track car and a street car. Hmm. Um, I think I think one of the first cars that I ever tried them on uh, was back about 10, 11 years ago on the Cadillac CTSV. Um, and then the uh, the previous generation Corvette ZR1 had them as well, and I've driven them on a few cars over the years, but they're they're always they're always fantastic. Yeah, and well, and it just makes a, a great car uh, better. So, like, I'm uh, my assumption is that if you were to step into a regular Mustang GT or even like a performance pack, you know, level one car, it would feel sloppy compared to. The one you just got out of. By, yeah, I mean, by comparison, you know, I mean, the, the GT is always pretty tight anyway. But, you know, in compared compared to this one, I think it would be, you know, you would definitely feel the difference, you know, primarily because of those dampers. Um, they've done, you know, along with the the uh, design refresh that it, that the Mustang got this year with the new new taillights and the new uh, um, new front fascia, a little more aggressive looking. Um one of the other things they added for the GT is the um, active uh, active exhaust system. So you know when you change drive modes between normal and sport plus and track mode, um, you know there, there's an active valve in the exhaust that makes it progressively louder. Uh, but there's also <laughs> they they added what they call a good neighbor mode. So there's a quiet mode in there. And, you know, so it, it makes it significantly quiet, makes the exhaust significantly quieter. And when you uh, you can also in the, you can go into the settings and you can program it. Um, so during specific hours, um, it automatically defaults to quiet mode when you start the car. Because otherwise, it just defaults to whatever you had it on last. But you can set it, you know. So if you, you know, if you come in, if you're leaving early in the morning, or you know, if you're coming in late at night, you can have it automatically be in quiet mode as you drive through your neighborhood, so you're not annoying your neighbors. That's uh, which is kind of a kind of a cool little thing to do. I mean, that's so polite. That's yeah. just, I don't know, the amount of annoyance that I get from my neighbors. I just run the thing open all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I guess though like 
so and you had an S197 too so yeah the the strides that the Mustang has made even in the last 10 years like it it's really a pretty full-fledged like GT or sports car now from from where it had been oh absolutely i mean it's you know the, going from the S197 which is the previous generation to the S550 which is the one that debuted in in 2015 or 2014 you know for the 50th anniversary you know it's a vastly more sophisticated car you know the the S197 you know i mean it the S197 was much improved from the fox body generations before it but um you know it, it was still relative, you know, it was still relatively cheap and, and crude, you know, it still had a, a live rear axle, which, you know, for drag racing was great. Uh, but, you know, for, you know, when, when the roads got rough, you know, it could still get a little bit unruly. Um, and, you know, going to the, the S the S five fifty generation, the current generation, you know, it's just, it's such a much more sophisticated car. I mean, you, it still has Mustang character in it. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it's, you step on it, you know, this thing's loud, you know, that five liter V eight is a fantastic engine. Um, and you know, they, they added, you know, another feature that they added this year, if you get the automatic, the 10 speed automatic that they, that replaced the six speed this year, there's also a drag mode in there, which, you know, when you engage the drag mode, um, basically it keeps, um, keeps the torque on in the engine, you know, as it's going through shifts. So it's basically like, you know, slamming through the gears oh, as, I see, as yeah. you shift it. Like stepless um, kind of. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, you don't have as much drop off. So I think I can't remember how much they said, but, you know, it cut like one, uh, one or two tenths off the quarter mile time. Um, you know, it's, it's not something you probably want to use all the time. Um, cause it's, it's probably going to, you know, have some durability issues for the transmission, or it's certainly not going to be very comfortable to drive all the time. The one I, the car I drove, um, had the, uh, the six speed manual and a set of Recaros, which, you know, oh, every car should have Recaro seats in them. You know, every car can have Recaro seats in them. That's true. Cause you can order Recaro seats. Actually, uh, you can you can go buy Recaro seats for almost any car and bolt them in. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, they have like new seats. I get press releases from them. They have right now. You could buy Recaro seats for uh, whatever you wanted in, in new expert houndstooth upholstery. Was <laughs> yeah. the, the one that I got? It's yeah, a, I think that I think that's a heritage model that they uh, introduced uh, oh, you know, to like celebrate like the the 1970s Porsche 930s that had uh, Recaro's in there. Um, and you, in fact, you can also get Recaro seats for your office. You can get Recaro office chairs. That's true. Yeah. And well, the story behind They're ridiculously Recaro, expensive, but you can, you can get them. Yeah. I, t I think Recaro and Momo were the same founder or is there something i forget um uh, i don't think so momo was an italian company ricaro is german i forget now oh but these these look good i i got the press release now it is it's that porsche houndstooth oh man that's a good looking seat <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh yeah here let me but, I they, just... but they don't they, they don't come cheap though no but they're worth it i mean you think about it, what you do in a car it, right you, like, you know you know the other thing ricaro does they, they don't just make seats for cars uh, they they make, make they make child seats. I know that they make child seats. They also make airplane seats. 
Do they really? Uh, yeah, a lot of airliners have Recaro seats in there. There's a if you, if you fly anywhere, there's a pretty decent chance you'll be sitting in a Recaro seat. Oh, granted, it won't be as comfortable and supportive as the one in this Mustang. But it, it may very well be a Recaro seat. Yeah, well, and that's probably because, you know, like that that's the volume business that lets Recaro make uh, race car seats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, um, and you probably in, in some airplanes you use an AmSafe uh, airbag equipped uh, seatbelt, which um, they were a past mm. client of ours. And Ford has picked that up in some of their I don't think it's actually AmSafe technology, but it is like a seatbelt that's almost like a, a bag and it has a. Uh, yeah, they, Ford was the first one to introduce that uh, on the Explorer when the current generation Explorer came out in 2010. Yeah, so that's something that came out of aviation, at least like the first practical application. And um, they're like chief engineers now. I think he's at NHTSA. Oh, I like the seat. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that's that's a that's a classic 1970s, early 80s Recaro seat. It, it's it's a beautiful seat. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the ones in the Mustang are, you know, the the lighter weight, you know, um, almost shell like the, the whole back. You know, it has very few adjustments. Basically, the only adjustments it has are fore aft and, and the, the rake of the seat back, um, you know, and then there's a, a fixed headrest, you know, just the one the single piece shell on the back uh, with big bolsters on it. Yeah, well, and like so auto like when you're buying a seat as, say, Ford, uh it's probably a much less expensive unit cost than the aftermarket Recaro with all the bells and whistles and, and have, you know, super special upholstery and stuff. They're, they're all built to a price. So, Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I really liked the seats in the, in the, uh, GT three fifty, which was the last Mustang I drove. Yeah. Th- um, those are, those are the same seats that are in this GT. Yeah. The Recaros. Those are great. <laughs> they are. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like the Mustang gets a ringing endorsement. How, how many miles did you put on it? Like seven or eight hundred? Uh, no, it was above uh, altogether. Plus, I had a couple other meetings when I uh, was back here. Uh, probably about six hundred miles. That That's enough to not want to give it back. Yeah, no, def- <laughs> definitely. I, I could definitely live with this car. Uh, you know, and, you know, the other thing about the Mustang, too, um, not not the Mustang. No, no, no I got it. I got it. Also the Mustang. I was going to let it pass. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> you know, um, Mustangs. You know, the, the even the S one ninety seven. You know, have had one of the big advantages they have over the Camaro and the Challenger is outward visibility. Um, you know, it, especially like when they went from the S one ninety seven to the S five fifty. One of the things you know that changed in the design was you know that it's got you know the fastback so there's less you know on the, on the previous generation the um, trunk lid was up higher than it is on the s550 by a couple of inches at least uh you know and if you look at it in profile you know you have the line that, the belt line that goes up and it continues up all the way to the back edge of the car whereas you know if you look at the the current mustang it kind of it tapers down more towards the back and so between that you have great rearward visibility you know you've got fairly big side glass for a sports car and comparatively slim um a pillars so you actually have shockingly good visibility out of this thing you know for for any modern car but particularly for a modern sports car yeah uh, and that's what like sort of the downfall for sure of the camaro is it's just dismal to be in and the the challenger is better but it has some 
some rear visibility challenges. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also the, you know, the challenger, uh, you know, because it's an LX, it's got that higher belt line, you know, so you feel like you're sitting down lower in the car, uh, versus in the Mustang. Yeah, that's true. The, whole, the Mustang just as a whole feels like the car is lower and you don't really feel like you're sunk down into it. And, you know, the, the Camaro has got that same problem of, you know, the high belt line, the, the narrow, the narrow greenhouse, you know, the, the shallow greenhouse, um, which means you basically can't see out of the thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Mustang has a it, that's an important car for Ford. And I think they know it and they, they keep it as good as it can be the last be. car for Ford. Hmm. It'd be pretty much the last car for Ford, at least in North America. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't mind them making a Mustang active. <laughs> <laughs> they might as well just call it the Bronco. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're 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 going to continue doing, um, you know, high performance models out of uh, out of Ford or Ford Performance. You know, I mean, you've got the we've already got the Edge ST. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised to see you know a Bronco ST or or more likely you know they they may use you know something like the Raptor badging. You know they've already done the the Bronco or the uh, Ranger Raptor for the Australian market, and you know there's rumors that uh, we're going to get that one here as well. So uh, you know it would it would make sense to uh, you know to maybe do a, a Bronco Raptor. I, you know, anytime Ford does the high performance thing, they do a, a, a pretty good job at it. Uh, they have they have an impressive array of engines right now that I'm I'm pretty impressed by with the you know the EcoBoost stuff and the the Coyote V8 uh, and I forget what the flat plane one is called, but Voodoo Voodoo, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know they got a three cylinder and a four cylinder. Like they've got a pretty good range of engines. Uh, um. And a diesel V6 in the F-150 that I'm driving this week. Yes, that's true. Uh, I can see them sort of following the the Dodge Chrysler pattern and just looking at profit and going, yeah, we don't need to sell these cars that nobody (laughs) buys in the U.S. and just, you know, make this stuff that's profitable and really tear down the line. You know, it's interesting. You know, I didn't put it on the rundown, but there was a report um, late last week that um, the current Fusion, you know, the, they're going to keep building the Fusion sedan that we have today for another three or four years. Um, you know, basically just keep tweaking it a little bit, uh, but no major, no major changes because they're just now launching it into the police market. But uh, reports are that the Fusion sedan is going to get replaced by um, a new wagon, um, which, you know, is going to be, you know, kind of a, uh, um, you know, a sport wagon crossover thing you know kind of like the the buick regal tour x essentially targeted at the um the subaru outback market so you know we may actually finally get the fusion wagon that we've wanted for for so long you know a mondeo wagon uh it's just going to be sitting a little higher than it should yeah but you know what's going to be a shame is like that's going to come out and it's going to get ignored and then they're going to be like why because there's even the, I think like the outback niche, like you, you're gonna have a, a tough time uh, competing there. Like I, I, you're gonna find saturation really fast with a car like that. I've, and I, like I don't know that there's that much room for something besides. Yeah, the I, I, you know, it, it depends on how far they go with it. You know, exactly how they execute it. I mean, obviously, you don't want to do it exactly like the outback. Yeah. Um, 
but you know there there could be there could be room for you know for a vehicle in that segment you know especially if they're you know sharing a platform you know sharing the the transverse unibody platform um you know that's going to be used for the uh the escape and the edge and you know numerous other crossovers just have one that's a little more car like yeah instead of instead of instead of having a uh, a utility like car it'll be more like a car like utility <laughs> hey you know what whatever sells enough to keep them making stuff it, it, like the mustangs right exactly or, i mean and and the ford gt like it's the Porsche thing. You know, everybody complained about the Cayenne and the Panamera to a certain degree, and even the Boxster, right? When that first came out, there's still a lot of people that feel like that's not a real Porsche. And it's just like, I, fine, you're entitled to your opinion, but... But you're wrong. It, right. It's, it's a pretty damn good car. And, you know... I mean, just because the engine's not behind the rear axle. I mean, even 911 race cars our mid engine now <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the 911 rsr has the engine you know they flipped the, the whole powertrain around and the engine's now in front of the rear axle well I, the amount of work they have to do to make the 911 and it's it's amazing to drive because it's so well behaved but with the engine hanging out back there they like you know they've got active engine mounts that that uh, stiffen up when you get on the power so the thing doesn't flop around as much like they've got all kinds of trickery in the back of that thing to make it do what it does and just and you know you know why they can do that because they sell a what? whole ton of cayennes and macans yeah. and panameras yeah but they like, make a whole lot of money you don't have to do quite as much as that uh you know you don't have to turn the engineering up to stun when you know the the engine is in the middle versus hanging out in the back axle one thing no, one, that's true one thing that uh apparently having the rear engine configuration allows that makes the 911 a good race car is that uh, like you can brake harder later mm -hmm. because of the the weight transfer is, is less extreme, which I thought was interesting. Um, I don't know. I, st I still like the rear engine thing because it's weird and it can get evil. It's it's unique. Yeah. Um. I there's no way I'm ever going to be able to afford a 911 anyway, so it's fine. I'll just. I mean, even even used 911s are getting into ridiculous prices now. Even even 912s are oh, 912s yeah, hitting ridiculous been, price yeah. points now. Uh, the I think the only 912 you could probably afford, sort of, would be like a 912e, and that's because it's that late 70s. It's a one year only car. It's a 76. Um, the like earlier 912s are the, the the late 60s and early 70s and, and those that like vintage 911s are so expensive that it's and it, they're they're project cars you know like i, I don't know i i like the 911 but uh i i sadly i don't think i will ever be able to own one which is okay it's fine i'll find you got to have something to strive for yeah yeah. Um, so I, this week I was also driving a Ford vehicle and I put a lot of miles on uh, this one. And it was uh, even a driver's car uh, or a, a driver oriented vehicle. I can't say it's a car, um, but it was it's not for performance driving. <laughs> uh, so I had a Transit 350. Um, with the mid-rise roof and, I don't know, all 14, 15 seats, something like that. 
Was it the long wheelbase, long body? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So we had to do a, a trip for um, one of the kids had a uh, competition uh, sports thing. And it was in Atlantic City, which is a great, great place to take children. Uh, just to, <laughs> should probably put that out there um, for a week. So I was like, OK, we're like, I've, I'm thinking like a week's worth of crap in the the jeep like it's comfortable to drive but that's a lot of luggage and i was just like whatever i'll see what i can do so i got this transit 350 which was like the sort of like other end of the scale like it was way too big for just the four of us but whatever um it was it's good to drive it's really good to drive Hey, everybody had their own row and you had a couple to spare. Yeah, I did. I, there was there were rows. To spare. I even took one pair of seats out of it. Um, and it's it's not like it has stow and go like the seats are the seat pairs are fairly heavy. Uh, I think it was probably 60, 70 pounds, might maybe a little lighter, but it was it was a little heavy to to move out of the, the transit and uh, just store it for the, the week. Uh, but that opened up a little bit more walking space. And it's just for what for what this is like i feel like we talk about sport utility vehicles and i think we need to rethink that because people aren't using sport utility vehicles for like you know off-roading like that's sort of the implied sport in sport utility but really what you do with a sport utility is you use the utility to get you to the sports that you then park the truck and get out. <laughs> and and uh, so a, like a four wheel drive truck based SUV is not a great fit, but a van is brilliant at it because it's just a box on wheels. And this one had the it this, is the ultimate in utility. It was fantastic. And uh, this is not like the old sort of E-series or a Conoline truck based van that is you know it, it rides real bouncy and heavy and just uh you know those were only so comfortable and only so manageable you knew that underneath it all it was a it was a truck the transit is really really well behaved it's really refined compared to those old style vans uh it, it, so i was really impressed actually by by how well thought out it is how good it is ford clearly paid attention to what the people who spend hours a day in these things need, you know, the cup holders were all in the right spots and, you know, had an armrest, the seats were pretty comfortable. Um, you know, it, it, it had an air conditioner that would freeze you, which is good because it's a huge vehicle. There's a lot of volume to cool down, had, uh, you know, really well-placed controls, huge mirrors, giant windshield, excellent visibility, uh, you know, easy to get in and out of it, it wasn't too high off the ground you know and, and it, it rode and handled decently well the the long wheelbase you know you, you didn't want to get too wild with it but it's it was really well behaved um so i'm impressed with this latest crop of of uh vans and and i i did make the mistake of forgetting that i was in a high roof van and so i learned about um a little bit of the history of New York parkways. <laughs> uh, and I, I knew this. So when, when, when I go to New York from, from Massachusetts, I generally wind up on um, the Sawmill River Parkway. 
which takes you down to like the Tappan Zee Bridge, which is a little north of the city. It's in, I think it's in like White Plains. Um, so there's other routes to get there, but if you're on any of the New York parkways, they're some of the first parkways in the nation. And they were designed to have this really rustic look, and they do. And they were also, you know, so part of the rumor is that um, they were designed to exclude buses in a in a ploy to keep um, the uh, riffraff out of the city. Well, the poor folks out of the suburbs, actually. And I think that's oh, really okay. the, the the story um, of the uh, the. Uh, Southern State Parkway, which is not uh, north of the city. That's Long Island, but it was inspired by these parkways. And so, like, the Southern State Parkway was designed by Robert Moses, and it actually has lower clearance bridges than uh, these, the 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 sawmill or the Taconic, which sort of run parallel to each other. Um, but anyway, the, the bridges are low, and I'm normally driving the parkway in a car. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll get on the sawmill. Signs everywhere, no commercial vehicles. Well, I'm not in a commercial vehicle. I'm <laughs> Well, actually, you are. <laughs> well, I mean, sort of. Um, yeah. So there were some bridges where it was like 13 feet clearance, 12 feet clearance, 11 feet. And I was like, you know what I failed to do is figure out how tall this thing is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we decided to get off um, and use the nav system, uh, which, you know, Ford, Ford nav is decently useful. Uh, and we had sync three in there. Uh, no, it was, I, this, this was an earlier version of sync. So this may have actually been a slightly earlier model. It was just hanging around the fleet. Um, but yeah, I think that the eighteens have sync three. Um, so even the earlier version of sync, like it's just still, it's, it's pretty good. I'm glad that it's in, in there because sometimes commercial vehicles are vehicles that are like more utilitarian. They, they sort of miss out on that stuff. Um, we we took a tour of Chabaqua. We did not find Hillary, but <laughs> we um, we stayed on some surface streets until I could get back on the parkway after I had gone past the the uh, low bridge thing. Because apparently, like vehicles winding that are too tall winding up on New York parkways is is a thing. They even have like a landing page about it. It's like, hey, you should not do this because like it causes huge traffic delays and it's very expensive for you. And if you like scalp your car, you're going to be in big trouble. So. Um, yeah, I learned about that. And then on the way home, we took 684, which basically just goes the same route. It just, it's designed for, for modern highway traffic. Um, but yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, the week with the transit. I think it's, um, if you have a, you know, a gaggle of people to move, <clears throat> obviously the long wheelbase one is, is, is excellent for that. It was really like, it was a bus. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, you know, for for those who are not familiar with metric, I believe a gaggle is fifteen. Is that correct? <laughs> it might not be full fifteen. It might be. I think yeah, it's, it's something like that. I, th- I think I think the the long wheelbase long body is is capable of fifteen. I think that's that that's probably right. I I can't remember. I had my ten year old count the seats, so I'm not sure whether we have an accurate count or not. But it was just close. Um, it got like 18 miles to the gallon, uh, maybe even higher. Um, That's I mean, for a only. vehicle, you know, with the, you know, the frontal area of a, of a medium sized barn. That's not too shabby. No. And it has the EcoBoost V6. Which is plenty of power. It would do 100 miles an hour if you wanted it to. I did not because <laughs> the suspension is not 
really up to the task, although it has pretty fat sway bars and it, it's very, again, it's well behaved. You just, you know, you got a long vehicle and you, you probably don't want to fool around with it because once you break it loose, you're not going to get it back. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, it, there's, there's a little bit of inertia there. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty good fuel economy for a uh, uh, a vehicle that big. And um, that was like combined driving. So it's like 17 to 18 mixed driving. You could probably keep it right around 20 if it were a highway only thing that that's really efficient. And, uh, you know, so I was looking at the, the EcoBoost in, in this installation. That is a that is an engine with serious potential. Um, and we've seen it, some of that potential realized in, in other vehicles, but man, it's corked up here. It's, you know, tiny intake runners, tiny turbos, you know, so there's, you, you move more air through that EcoBoost V6. It's going to make a lot more power. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, what, what is it about 365 in the transit? Uh, yeah, something like that. I was impressed with it. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, well, you know, I mean, the, you know, you have a that same, you know, or a variant of that 3.5 liter EcoBoost in the Ford GT right. know, producing <laughs> 650 horsepower. Right. I bet it has a lot larger plumbing. Um, uh, a little. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's 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 a really responsive engine. It's not like the old modular V8s that they make decent power on paper, but you got to wind them up for it. And so that would make the, the vans and the trucks feel a bit sluggish and very thirsty. Uh, this was pretty responsive, you know, had torque right off the line and did no, no problem, you know, pulling away from toll booths, merging to traffic. It had plenty of power. Uh, and but the best feature of all was because we wound up in Atlantic City, uh, which is not my favorite place. Um, and it turns out when you wind up in Atlantic City with a vehicle too tall to park in a garage yourself, you have to valet it. Uh-huh. Week. Uh, <laughs> um, but at a certain point, you want to stop putting yourself in a situation where you have to tip people. <laughs> so um, like when you want to put luggage on and off uh, a vehicle in Atlantic City, it's another racket. Like you're not allowed to touch the luggage trolley cart thing. You have to have the guy come and do that for you so you can tip him. It's a racket uh, with a Ford vehicle. Even if the valet has your key, you can look for the little card that's in the owner's manual that gives you the access code on that antique keypad that's on there. And then you can go find the car in the lot and you can just use the access code to unlock the car, put the stuff you need to put in it, in it, lock it back up and do that multiple times so you can save yourself money. That was that's my little cheapskate dad trick. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I mean, I just that feature. I have it on my own car. I've never used it. And like I just had this this light dawn on my head that week. And it was like the best thing ever. I've realized like, oh, we can get into this thing without the key. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, we should move as on. Long, as long as you can find out where it's parked. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's so big, they had to put it in the oversized lot that was, you know, right right in front of the casino. Not not too far. So, um, at, at least with that thing, you, you know, you probably didn't have to worry about them going around joyriding in the thing. No, no. I kind of wanted to, like, actually charge people for rides down to the, um, the boardwalk. But then I realized that the sort of privatized public transportation that's in that town uh, probably would not take kindly to that. And I decided not to do that. <laughs> I thought you we you make, didn't want to get your legs broken. No, but I thought we could make a few extra bucks. I mean, we had a 15 passenger <laughs> van, you know, I could undercut the, the sort of entrenched, uh, I could, I could pull an Uber, right. I could just uh, charge people much cheaper rates for rides. And when I had, 
Just slap, you know, slap a sign on the side that says uh, chariot, you know, and just say, hey, you're with Ford. Uh, I wanted to come home alive. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, we should just move on now to the actual podcast. I've, I've geeked out quite enough. All right. Um, so, yeah, uh, so- our first first topic is. Uh, well, you went to Argo. Why don't we talk yeah. about that? You went, to, yeah, you, so, you went to Argo and you're going to you're going to your impressions will be elsewhere. And yeah. So how? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Ar- Argo AI, uh, for those that haven't been paying attention, is a company that started. Uh, it was formed in late November of 2016. Uh, a couple months later, Ford announced that they were investing up to a billion dollars in it uh, for to take a majority stake. Was founded by a guy named Brian Selesky and uh, his co-founder Pete Radner. Uh, Brian, um, back in you know the DARPA Urban Challenge days of 2007, um, when uh, when the team from Carnegie Mellon University with support from uh, from GM uh, won the DARPA Urban Challenge, uh, you know, for autonomous vehicles. Um, that team was led by. Uh, Chris Urmson and Brian Selesky. Um, Chris led the the hardware development side, putting all putting all the sensors and everything together, and Brian led the software development. And then uh, we actually we had an interview with Brian that I did uh, last summer uh, when I first met him uh, in San Francisco um, back in August of 2017. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but. Um, had a chance, you know, ever since um, they set up shop in Pittsburgh, you know, they've been growing. At the time that Ford made their investment, uh, Argo had about six people. They have 338 people now. And um, so even though Ford owns a majority stake, you know, Argo is respon- has been given responsibility for developing the production version of the automated driving system for Ford that they're going to launch in 2021. So they're they're putting together the um, the sensor stack, uh, the compute platform and all the software and then working with Ford to integrate all of that into the vehicle that Ford is developing. Um, you know, and I got the chance to spend most of the day with, with Brian and, and, uh, Pete and, um, VP of robotics, um, Brett Browning, uh, learning about, you know, how, how they're doing their system. And, you know, one of the big things that, you know, they really focused on in the conversation was the emphasis on safety, you know, really trying, you know, they're really focused on making sure that their system is going to be safe and robust, um, you know, doing a lot of testing. They've, you know, they've built a lot of their own tools in-house for doing mapping, you know, building out HD maps. Um, and they're currently testing their their fleet of uh, autonomous fusions. Uh, they've got a couple dozen in Pittsburgh. Uh, they've got more in Dearborn. Uh, and then a third fleet down in Miami where uh, Ford announced a, a few months ago that they're they're starting to test in Miami and you know so they've been doing the the mapping in Miami and they're uh, they've started doing the, the autonomous mode testing down there and they're going to be working with uh, Lyft and they've already been doing some stuff with Domino's down there and also bringing in Postmates and you know working with all those different partners to figure out how they're going to um, you know develop business models to actually try and make money from these vehicles. Cause that's something that nobody has really figured out yet is, <laughs> is the money making part. Um, you know what they you know, should do is they should stop all the autonomous development and just buy up parcels to make into parking lots. 
(laughs) (laughs) For the the foreseeable future, that would probably be more profitable. Yeah. Um, Uh, Are they like uh, the last man standing in Pittsburgh? Everybody else is kind of left, right? um, Uber's still there. Um, you know, and I actually reached out to Uber when I was, um, making my plans to go to Pittsburgh. Um, you know, and they said, uh, they're not quite ready to start talking yet about what they're doing. Um, in fact, while I was down there, um, Uber announced that, um, they were laying off all of their vehicle operators. You know, they had already laid off everybody in, um, in Phoenix after the crash a few months ago, and they were now laying off about a hundred people that were still left in Pittsburgh and in San Francisco. So these are the the safety drivers, and they're going to start rehiring, um, and they're now calling them mission specialists instead of vehicle operators, um, and they're going to go through a much more intensive training program. and And this is one of the things that the the Argo guys showed me. They took me over to the depot, which is a couple blocks away from their new office. Uh, where they they keep the cars and you know told you know told me all about the the training process you know when they when they bring in vehicle operators new vehicle operators you know they go through a three-phase training process where they um they first uh spend time you know just driving around in a conventional vehicle you know um getting used to how all the things work um and you know learning some of the procedures uh and then they go into um uh testing on a closed course you know driving around on a closed course in the automated vehicles and then the third phase is you know some more evaluation before they're allowed to actually go and and actually start uh operating these vehicles during during testing um and one of the interesting things they do is you know they Aside, you know, Uber was the only company that was uh, having safety driver, just a single safety driver in their car. Everybody else has two. They have one to actually monitor the, you know, to be the operator to take over in case of a problem. And the other, uh, you know, is the one who's looking at the data. And one of the things that Argo is doing is they're actually, um, they swap um uh, partners every day on a daily basis. So they're running two shifts a day. So every day you're driving with somebody different and the goal, you know, a couple of goals with that one is, you know, you don't try not to get too bored, you know, talking to the same person every day, uh, as you're cruising around, uh, Pittsburgh or Miami or, 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 uh, Michigan and, in Dearborn. Uh, but also, you know, to try to reduce complacency, you know, try you know, so that basically, you know, everybody's trying to keep each other on their toes, you know, and making sure everybody's still paying attention, uh, to what's going on in the vehicle. Um, you know, which is, that's, you know, that's something that, was a big part of the problem with with the uber crash is that you know nobody was really monitoring the 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 vehicle operator to make sure that she was paying attention and that's you know what caught so she wasn't ready to take over when the vehicle failed to do what it was supposed to do um so you know uh, i can't can't talk yet about um, the impressions of the, the ride I took with the vehicle. Um, but you know, in terms of the engineering work that Argo's doing, you know, they're, they're 
they seem to be pretty thorough. You know, one of the oh, one of the interesting things that they've done that seems to be a little different. You know, it's like most most automated driving systems. You've got basically three components in there. You've got the perception system, which is where all the all the sensor data comes in, and it tries to classify what what the sensors are seeing around the vehicle. And then you have the path planning system, which decides where's the vehicle going to go, and then the actuation system that actually you know makes it stop go and and steer and um one of the things that are you know one of the components that argo's got in here between perception and path planning is the prediction engine so you know it's looking at you know once it's classified all the objects around the vehicle you know pedestrians other vehicles whatever um you know it's running prediction models on where it thinks those objects are going to go and then feeding that into the path planning, you know, to try to determine where the vehicle should go in response to all that. Well, for that prediction engine, one of the things they've done is they've incorporated game theory into that. And, um, you know, the, some of the people that they hired to work on that component are, they hired a bunch of people from Disney, um, you know, who, who work with um, ESPN, um, you know, that program systems for the cameras following sports, you know, when you're doing sports coverage, yeah, you know, they, they want to know, you know, what they want to know where the cameras need to be looking, you know, what, what path do the cameras need to be taking, you know, looking at all the players and figuring out where, where they're likely to go and making sure that the cameras can follow them automatically. Yeah. Definitely. Like the guys who do hockey, cause yeah. I can't ever see the puck. hockey, basketball, um, you know, um, Soccer is another one. Yeah. So that that I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, having these game theory guys as part of the team. Yeah. You know, so they're 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 not people that are, you know, traditionally working on automated vehicle systems, but it's it's an important component of this that can hopefully make the system more safer and more reliable. Well, and so like that kind of prediction engine kind of thing is uh what everybody does to a certain degree you know they do it i guess right. in, in different ways yeah, but i mean you you have you have to be able to project where where the other road users are going to go but i think that you know at least from from what i've seen you know this is the first one that's using some of this game theory stuff yeah and well and that's why i i, I was going to say like that's their sort of like their their differentiator right is the the way they do it um and and i th- those differences are going to sort of sort out the you know the the winners from the the losers or i don't want to put it in those terms but you you know what i mean like those those are going to be the the real like differentiators about who gets to market who has a system that's that's reliable and um you know offers solid stable performance on a on a regular basis yeah. And, you know, uh, another aspect of what they're doing is just kind of the way their whole software system is architected. Um, you know, you talk to some of the companies that are doing this stuff, you know, and everybody's using, you know, machine learning techniques to some degree. And one of the, you know, I mean, machine learning is really cool in that, you know, you can put together this model and then feed it a bunch of data and train the model, you know, to be able to recognize different different types of objects uh, and understand what they are. The problem is once you've done that, it's hard to know, 
it's it's not like traditional software where you can look into it and understand exactly what it's doing because as it's tra- as it's training it's making connections and it's changing things or it's changing itself around so um you know the idea is trying to replicate you know the synapses in the brain you know what happens in, in the human brain you know in a neural network and so um actually trying to validate that the software is doing the right you know there's the software is always going to do the right things is actually much more challenging and so um some companies are you know basically creating a giant you know monolithic uh neural network system um that you know it basically makes the whole thing a big black box um which may be fine but the problem is you're it's going to be very hard to prove what it's going to do in any particular situation without just testing it. Uh, you can't do, you know, much other kinds of analysis on it. And so what they're doing is they're, they're breaking their system up into smaller chunks. Um, you know, what they call a modular decomposition. And that's, they're certainly not the first to do that, but by breaking it up into smaller chunks, they can, they're using neural nets where it makes sense. And also using more traditional software approaches in other areas where it makes sense, trying to use the right tool for the job. And they can, you know, unit test all these different pieces and hopefully have a more reliable system coming out the other end. That's really we'll interesting see. approach. Yeah. I, I can see why Ford would, would invest in these, these guys to, to do it too, versus like trying to bake that all in house, which you know, I'm sure they're also working on their own internal efforts at the same time to a degree too. Yeah, well, what you know, what happened was when they invest when they did the investment in Argo, um, a few dozen uh, people that were working on the the project internally at Ford uh, went over to Argo and are, and are working at Argo, um, but you know the the autonomous driving effort that they were doing at Ford was more uh more of a research type of system you know it wasn't it wasn't really designed as a production intent system and so um what they did was they handed off what they've done to Argo Argo you know has redone a lot of it you know to make it more robust for a production system and the Ford guys uh back in Dearborn are continuing future development work, you know, uh, down on the path that they were on, you know, researching new, new techniques, new ways to do this. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I still come back to the fact that they kind of need two drivers or two people in the car <laughs> to, uh, just keep each other on their, on their toes. I just, I don't know that we're ever going to get, past that so it's it's again we're in that space between like assisted driving and full autonomy and what applications we we find for that so you know like i have no doubt that they're going to make the technology actually work and then it's like what do we do with it well um, a bunch of companies seem to think that they're pretty close to doing it without human operators in there um you know waymo plans to start doing theirs uh by the end of this year and gm plans to launch their uh, automated mobility service uh sometime first part of 2019 Uh, in fact there was a report came out last week or last week i think from bloomberg um and uh got some pictures of it that um 
GM uh, installed 18 DC fast chargers in a parking garage in the Barcadero area of San Francisco to support their autonomous fleet, you know, so that the cars, you know, when they need a charge, they can come in, plug in, get plugged in, get recharged quickly and get back on the road again. Um, and this, you know, this is one of the things that, that Ford is doing differently. They decided that rather than, um, rather than go the battery electric route for their first generation and rely on DC fast charging, which can you know, degrade the battery over time, they're going with a hybrid for their first vehicle. Um, and, you know, Waymo is kind of splitting the difference. They're doing a plug-in hybrid first with the Pacifica hybrid and then also bringing on uh, the Jaguar I-Pace for their premium service, which is a battery electric. Yeah, well, and that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, we've talked about how they really do need the hybrid or EV architecture for, you know, enough power to run the sensors. And it just makes it easier to uh, also sort of automate the driving um, to a degree. So uh, that doesn't surprise me. And like, honestly, I think that the hybrid is probably like a, a quicker route to get from here to being in service um, and having, uh, you know, less time on the charger. Uh, you know, we know how long it takes to fill up with, with gasoline and that car can sort of constantly be running with very short breaks to, to refuel. And while we all want to see that electric future, like it's, I, I think the, the hybrid is probably a smarter approach at this point. So I, I, I would tend to agree. Um, and eventually we'll, we'll all have EVs and we'll all live in little utopian pods and it will be marvelous um no it'll never be a utopia <laughs> we're we're all doomed uh all right well same with the we're all gonna die for, thing for, for well we all are we are all gonna die eventually yes, but absolutely for, right now fortunately are, I'm, I'm closer to it than, than you are well, so. you never know you never know so let's see uh so i can i can just enjoy enjoy what's left yeah every second that ticks away we're one second closer uh yep. <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, in the meantime, though, speaking of like virtual utopia, uh, Goodwood just happened. And no, that's a real utopia. Yeah. I mean, OK. Uh, <laughs> there was a self-driving car there. Kind of. Um, yeah, but, you know, who cares? Actually, there were um, there were a couple. There, there, was, were, there was actually a couple of self-driving yeah. cars or sort of self-driving. One one was sort of self-driving. The other the other was truly self-driving. Uh, so Goodwood Festival of Speed is an annual event that occurs, which is it's it's something I definitely have to get to one of these years. So um, there's there's a few things I want to go to. Goodwood is one of them. Um, uh, uh, Lemons race uh, is is another. I, I would love to participate in a lemons race, but that's a different story. Speaking of being close to that. Um, <laughs> hey, all you need is a $500 car. Right. And a couple thousand in safety equipment. Um, Details. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Radwood, which is a newer thing that has not come to the East Coast. And I didn't realize how much work they actually put in to putting on those Radwood shows, which if you haven't heard of, of Radwood, it's just kind of like uh, cars of the just eighties and nineties. And, and um, you know, a celebration of that culture, if you will. Uh, 
so I was pestering them for a while, like, do one on the East Coast, do one on the East Coast. And then they explained, like, yeah, OK, fine. But Jake, unless you're going to help, stop bugging us. Like, we'll get there. <laughs> it's a lot of work and you don't fully appreciate how much work it is. So once I realized how much work it is, now I fully appreciate it. But anyway, uh, yeah, Goodwood is, is high on that list of, of things to to go to because it's it's you're just driving up. Uh, the Earl's driveway, right? It's the Earl of March. Pretty much. Right? Yeah. Or the, the Duke, uh, the Lord of March. Lord I think of it is. March. Oh, pardon me. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lord March. Didn't, didn't mean to demote him. Um, yeah. He's just got this awesome driveway and they just drive bonkers stuff up it for like, I don't know, a week? three days, three days, yeah, three, three days. Yeah. So, yeah, it's at Goodwood House in uh, Sussex in England. Uh, this year was the 25th anniversary. And um, people and companies bring all kinds of fascinating stuff. The, uh, you know, the, the hill climb itself, uh, you know, it's a 1.1 mile course, you know, lined by hay bales, you know, up basically, as you said, up the driveway, um, to, uh, towards the manor house. And, um, the all time record was set in 1999 by Nick Heidfeld in a McLaren F1 car. Uh, that is a formula one car, not a McLaren oh, F1. I was to say uh, McLaren F1. Yeah, sort of yeah. like, I mean, they, they've had McLaren F1s doing it, of doing course. the uh, doing the, the the climb, but uh, this was in an MP4 13. Uh, he did it in 41.6 seconds. <laughs> That's um, so fast. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy fast. Um, and you know, the, uh, Sebastian uh, Buemi has done it in a Red Bull uh, F1 car. So I mean, there's there's been a bunch of F1s, um, you know, and all kinds of classic and and more modern vehicles every year they not they honor a different mark you know so it's kind of like at uh pebble beach you know where they have a different honored brand every year um and uh this year it was porsche for their 70th anniversary um and uh, they you know they create this um amazing sculpture um, you know, on the grounds, oh, yeah. it's usually, usually goes up well up into the air, you know, with some of the, the cars from the honored brand, uh, you know, up, up in the air above everything. A couple of years ago, they had, uh, uh, Mazda and they had the, the seven, eight, seven B that won, uh, won Le Mans in 1991 with a four rotor Wankel, um, you know, up on this giant pedestal. Uh, so it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, this year, among the uh, the cars that were on hand, um, Porsche brought the 919 Evo, uh, which is the, the the P1, the hybrid P1 car that won Le Mans the last three years, um, and just uh, just a few weeks ago um, broke the all time lap record at the Nordschleife, the North Loop of the the Nurburgring. Um, you know, broke a 35 year old record. This thing makes like a thousand horsepower and ran around, uh, the Nurburg ring in like, uh, how much it was like crazy it, fast. It was, like I six, remember it was, uh, yeah, six, six minutes and, uh, I can't remember now lost it. But, um, anyway, um, they did not go. Uh, you know, they, Porsche was approached to, you know, make a run with it. They opted not to because they, you know, they said that their goal was not necessarily to break every single uh, record, but rather, um, you know, just at some selected tracks. And, you know, so they went to the Nürburgring. They went to Spa um, in Belgium and, uh, you know, they're going to a few other tracks. But um, they did some demonstration runs, you know, uh, you know, before the actual timed runs happened. So there's no official time for Porsche for the 919. But um, 
it's you know this this thing is a wickedly fast car i'm sure that if they had decided to run this it would have easily broken that 41.6 record but another car from the vw group did uh run and did did quite well it was the uh the idr that uh smashed the uh, pikes peak record a few weeks back yeah and uh it ran a 43.6 time up the hill uh you know as an as an electric uh race car and then, as you said, they, uh, you know, a couple of um, uh, autonomous cars, or at least one was uh, autonomous. The other was not quite as autonomous as it needed to be, which was <laughs> they, Siemens put together a, a 1965 Mustang with a uh, self-driving system or what was supposed to be a self-driving system that uh, didn't actually work so well. Um, it, uh, you know, apparently, you know, I guess it was guided primarily by the, um, by GPS uh, and they yeah. had, they had problems with the GPS signals. You know, there's a lot of trees around the, uh, the Goodwood course. And so it was having problems with the GPS signals and, you know, some other sensor issues. And so it was kind of slowly meandering up the hill. The driver was constantly, constantly had to correct the steering. So it was just, it was not good. But the other one that did make it up, um, was the, uh, the robo race prototype. Um, which is, you know, this, this prototype, uh, race car, you know, autonomous race car, um, that's being developed for this new robo race series. Um, I can't find an actual time that it set. So I don't know if it set an official time or just did a demonstration run. Yeah. Jalopnik says it was, uh, it's lap wasn't half as fast as some of the cars that made the drive. So, yeah, well, they, it, they did say they, they limited its speed to 75 miles an hour because it was the first time they were doing it. So, uh, the, so I, I don't I don't understand autonomous racing. Neither do I. I have like, you know, I'm, I mean, uh, as my job, you know, I'm interested you know, and as an engineer at heart, I'm interested in autonomous driving technology. But as a racing fan, I have zero interest in watching autonomous yeah, race cars. It's like watching Roombas fight it out. Like, no, I I don't care. I want yeah. to. I, I don't know. I see, and that's one of the coolest things about um, Goodwood is that it's it's one of the few places that you're ever going to see so much of this just amazing stuff from from supercars to even the the autonomous like high highest tech cutting edge stuff to like the uh, or a, ancient, a guy in a Range Rover Sport um, you know, setting a new uh, setting a new record <laughs> on two wheels uh, right two minutes and 24 and a half seconds well I think uh, there's that and and then there's just like there's the old amazing stuff that you never get to see driven in anger like uh the Beast of Turin uh, mm -hmm. was there I mean like that thing they, blow your mind uh, the the uh, the original bullet Mustang yeah uh, raced against the new bullet too didn't it or did they uh, I I don't it? think it raced again they don't I mean they race one at a time so they don't race head to head uh, they, yeah, they race I, against the clock right that's what um, I mean. and uh, yeah so they made a run in in each of those Mustangs they probably weren't uh, working the original one like you know to the edge of its envelope uh, given its sort of importance I guess in the legend. Yeah, and I, I I doubt it. <laughs> uh, but either way, like you never like you'll maybe like if you go to something like a Concord event or like Pebble Beach or whatever, you'll you'll see them drive by, and so you get to see them moving under their own power. But you don't get to see them 
driven like you get to see them driven at Goodwood, unless you're. Yeah, there. I mean, one of, one of the few places where you'll see, you know, there's a few places where you can see these classic cars running hard. You know, one is uh, actually at, at Pebble Beach. You know, they have an event or during That's, Pebble Beach yeah. week. They have the, the vintage races on the Saturday at uh, Laguna Seca. Uh, which is just down the road from Pebble Beach. Uh, and then, of course, there's the Le Mans Classic, which was, uh, I think, last week or the week before, uh, which is run every two years. You know, and they have a bunch of uh, shorter races for classic Le Mans, pre, you know, prior Le Mans cars, you know, and some going back, you know, to the 1930s and 40s, well, yeah, 1930s and 40s, but also newer ones, you know, like Porsche 956s and, and you know, Group 5 cars from, from the 70s and all kinds of amazing stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, Goodwood is, Goodwood is quite unique, though, in, in the mix of different vehicles that you'll see there. So... It should be at the top of everybody's list. <laughs> Absolutely. If you're if you're into cool cars, um, this is definitely the place to go. All right. Um, I wanted to come back to Volkswagen for a moment because uh, we they've talked about the IDR. Uh, the ID Cross and the Buzz are coming, according to rumors. Well, they're they're definitely coming. I mean, they yeah. they've previously announced that they you know they've got a VW is going to have a whole range of ID branded electric ve- battery electric vehicles. Yeah, I the thing that's throwing me off is that like our source link here is an is an auto car story, and sometimes I just get the feeling that they just make stuff up. <laughs> they're just like throwing things at the dartboard and like yeah yeah eventually you know what make it a five year prediction five years from now and then anything could happen. And we could just be like, yeah, whoops, that didn't happen. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're going to they're coming to the U.S. They're going to be built here, um, yeah. which is interesting. Uh, well, they, I mean, they, they VW, again, had previously announced that both. You know, so that right now they've shown three different ID concepts. They had the hatchback, which is, uh, you know, a golf sized uh, battery EV. Um but it's not based on the golf platform. So all, all these are based off their new modular electric platform. Um, so the, the ID hatchback is going to be the first one launching next year. Uh, and then uh, in like middle of the year, I think. And then the latter part of the year uh, or early 2020 is the ID cross. And that's going to be the first one that's coming to the U S market. And that's a crossover um, and they showed that one last year uh, at the LA Auto Show. Uh, I think they actually b- debuted it in Shanghai last year and then brought it to LA. Um, and then the ID Buzz, which we saw last year here at the Detroit Auto Show, uh, which is the, the the minivan, you know, inspired by the original microbus. And the you know, so the the Auto Car Report uh, says, you know, they were talking to. Uh, uh, the head of the new head of VW of America, and that the the ID Cross and the bus or Buzz <laughs> will both uh, actually be assembled here in the U.S. Uh, for the for the North American market. So probably uh, you know built in Chattanooga. You know since Chattanooga is not running anywhere near its capacity anyway. Um, you know they they will they'll make those vehicles probably in Chattanooga. Do the tariffs? that have been enacted have any sort of effect on that? Uh, I'm, I'm sure that couldn't have any impact on their, their decision-making. Um, no, yeah, it, it probably, it probably does have an impact, uh, somewhat of an impact. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, they, they considered that, uh, you know, but there's also, um, you know, just the, the cost of transportation, you know, of these vehicles, you know, you, if you can make them locally, um, you know, that would be, that would be the preferred method. You know, I think when it comes to battery electric vehicles in particular, I think if you can avoid shipping them overseas with those big batteries in there, they would prefer to do that. Uh, so I think that's, that's probably another factor that came into this as well. And just like I said, the fact that they, they have available capacity at the Chattanooga plant, uh, cause you know, the Passat's not doing that great. Uh, the Atlas is doing fine, but you know, there, there's still, there's still plenty of room to add more product in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, are these the right products for, to, to, to use that capacity, I guess would be my question. Like the, I mean, the buzz is cool. Um, I'm, yeah, the buzz will probably be lower volume. It's, you know, the, the crossover, the cross is the one that's, that's probably going to be the highest volume of the three. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, I'd like to see them, the production versions too. Like what I've seen, and again, like I just sort of thinking about the buzz most specifically was, you know, a very show car kind of presentation. So, you know, interior controls that are really slick, but definitely not, not production car uh stuff so i, w- I want to see how it makes that transition and uh because volkswagen usually does a, a pretty good job of uh ergonomics and um you know making making this stuff work and work well for drivers so i'd, I'd like to see how that works out yeah i mean um it, it'll be interesting to see you know especially the the buzz like you said you know that one's got kind of the most far out interior design uh, it's the most concepty of the of the three, um, but uh, you know, and I think that you know the the other thing is I think the buzz will also probably be the basis for you know uh, the any autonomous vehicle that they launch here yeah. for mobility services. Well, I mean, it's a it's a van. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Well, and there's also the rumor that they're gonna um, they're gonna bring the Beetle back to use the same. Uh, the same sort of uh, underpinnings, um, and it, it Volkswagen's really good at this too. Like the the MEB, right? Their their electric platform uses a lot of MQB stuff as well. Uh, no, no, not really. No, the the MEB is more of a skateboard design. Oh, okay. So it's it's more, you know, like uh, what Tesla and actually, you know, GM was actually the they they actually created the skateboard concept. Um, you know, so basically you have a, a big battery, you know, and the suspension and motors attached to either end of it, you know, so big fat battery pack down the bottom of the car. Um, and, uh, and then everything attached at the ends of it. And then you can just drop, drop different top hats on it. I mean, it's, it's a good concept. It's, it's been around for a very long time and, uh, you know, Tesla has been successful with it. So, uh, and, and sort of, I, yeah, that's that's true. But it, we're not going to talk about Tesla. We're not, that's right. Not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the electric cars are coming, um, whether they're autonomous or not. Like, I, I feel like uh, there's we're at that critical mass where they really have gotten a lot more practical to own and use and, and uh, be adopted. So I, I don't see them going away anytime soon. 
No, definitely not. They're, well, I mean, if nothing else, you know, regulations will keep them around for the foreseeable future. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> as long as we have some. <laughs> well, I mean, you still have California. That's that's true. That's yeah, California and and nine other states, or and possibly ten soon. Uh, Colorado is also looking at adopting the California uh, emission standards and and the ZEV mandate. So yeah, we have we have that stuff. I don't know about the ZEV mandate, but we have the the emissions here in Massachusetts and all. I think all of New England now has California yeah. emissions. So. Yeah, I think uh, Connecticut and New York um, have the ZEB mandate. I don't think uh, the other states north of that do, though. So, all right. Next. Uh, next up, Hyundai. A uh, couple of new cars, new new models uh, that have recently joined the lineup. You can you can buy them now. Uh, they've been doing some drives around. I actually drove them. It's been about a month, a little more than a month since I actually drove them here in Detroit, and we just haven't gotten around to talking about them. Uh, the uh, the new Kona and the Veloster, the second generation Veloster. Um, the Kona's their small crossover, uh, so, you know, below the the Tucson, and uh, it's it's pretty cool. I, I like the Kona a lot. Um, it, you know, it's kind of funky looking, uh, not, not quite as, uh, hard on the eyes as like a Nissan Juke. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's got, you know, a nice size to it. You know, if you're looking for a small crossover, um, definitely if you go down that path, I would definitely recommend getting the, the 1.6 liter turbo, uh, instead of the, the two liter naturally aspirated four cylinder. Uh, it's a it's a lovely little engine uh, in the Kona. It's about 175 horsepower, and um, it moves it along quite nicely. Yeah, well, and they they call the styling, and it's interesting to see like they with the Kona, you know, they they followed a little bit of a trend that was sort of set out by the um, the Cherokee, the Jeep Cherokee, the KL. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cherokee that had the parking lights sort of up where the headlights might be, and then the headlights were were located lower. Uh, the Kona kind of does that as well, but I think it does it actually more successfully than the Cherokee did, or maybe that we're just a little bit more used to it now. Um, and now that the Cherokee has gone back to a more traditional headlight, yeah, um, you know it's it's different. Uh, it's it. You know, it, it's a look, and and I think that the, in this, this end of the segment, you know, compact crossover, uh, you know, like a a B segment car, like that's a lot of different buyers, and it's not a very expensive segment generally. So, one of the ways you stand out is is by you know, uh, sort of unique style, and and the Kona certainly has it. They call it a urban smart armor exterior which yeah whatever just you know i mean it's a it's a one of their goofy marketing terms that they come up with to (laughs) to describe what they're doing somebody toiled like an entire afternoon to come up with those three words oh they they probably spent a month (laughs) coming up with that i mean you you work in advertising you know what that nonsense is like yeah we i work at a small agency so for me it would be an afternoon i'd come up with a few and then generally, like, I'd present three or four, and then we'd take, like, one from each <laughs> each collection of words. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's different looking, and it's it's not that small. Uh, I'm trying to think about, like, in terms of size, what it's, it's roughly sort of size. It's, like. it's pretty comparable to, like, the Echo Sport and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit smaller than the Honda HR-V. Um, 
you know, Mazda CX three size, you know, it's in, it's in that same, that same basic size class. Um, the, the rear seat, you know, is definitely a little t- is tighter than the HRV. Um, you know, but it's not, it's not, ba- it's not terrible. I mean, you know, a couple of adults could fit back there. You won't be as comfortable as in the Honda, but, um, you, you know, you can, you can manage as long as the front passengers are willing to give you a little bit of, uh, a little bit of leeway. Um, the, Overall ergonomics are pretty good. The the powertrain is is really nice. It drives drives well. Um, no real complaints about that. Well, you know, the powertrain yeah. was interesting too because, like you, you talked about the turbo, which is is great. I I've enjoyed that engine in other uh, Hyundai vehicles that I've, I've driven it in. Um, the base engine is a Atkinson cycle. Yeah, which, but it's not which is which is unusual right. uh, because it's not a hybrid, right? And so generally, they, you know, the Atkinson cycle engine is paired with the hybrid for for no sort of loss of performance. When you have it on its own, it, it's not that the performance is bad, but it's 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 less yeah. than. I mean, the, the the thing about the Atkinson cycle, um, you know, for for those that, that don't know, you know, the Atkinson cycle, uh, is, you know, it's one one of a different one of the four stroke combustion cycles, and basically you keep the uh, intake valves open longer. So you have um, a shorter compression stroke uh, effectively than you do uh, the power stroke. So it gets gets more work out of the fuel. Uh, but what you what happens is you give up quite a bit of torque. And so Atkinson cycle engines are usually uh, they're, they're usually combined with something else. You know, um, in most cases, they're combined with. Um, with a hybrid system. So, you know, because the hybrid, the electric motor in the hybrid gives you instant torque right off the, you know, from zero RPM, it kind of fills in that low end torque hole that you get with an Atkinson engine. And so, you know, it works out fine. The other um, way that it sometimes gets done is oh. to add a supercharger to it. Miller and, cycle. <laughs> and that becomes a Miller cycle. So an I Atkinson like <laughs> with, a, with a supercharger is a Miller cycle. Yeah. And so that gives you that, again, that low end torque that you're losing from the Atkinson. Um, you know, and you know, it's, it's fine. It's efficient, uh, but it's not, not as much fun to drive. You know, the, the one six turbo, um, you know, is nearly as efficient, but you get 175 horsepower and 195 foot pounds of torque, uh, you know, and that comes from 1500 RPM. So it's, you know, it's, it's a more enjoyable drive you know and if you look at the fuel economy the two liter atkinson engine is rated at 25 city and 30 highway the the one six turbo is 26 city and 29 highway so they're they're virtually the same yeah um on the sticker i wonder what that winds up being i mean real world you'll probably get a couple miles per gallon less you know it depends depends on how you drive it if you drive it aggressively you're going to get lower fuel economy but the same thing is also going to be true of the atkinson and because 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 the atkinson is so short on torque at the low end you're going to be more inclined probably to to stomp on it you know, in the hopes that something might happen as opposed to, <laughs> you know, the, the turbo, you know, is more responsive. So you, you know, in most driving, you know, especially, you know, in most city driving, you don't really have to get into it that hard, you know, to get good drivability out of it. Yeah. That, then that, that all makes sense. Um, so you drove it with the turbo and their, their dual clutch transmission, right? Like that. Yep. Yeah. The six speed uh, or seven speed dual clutch. 
um, which is a very nice transmission. You know, it's it's probably I, I'd say it's it's probably the best DCT you know out there in any mainstream vehicles. Huh. I mean, when you're I, you're, I can understand against like sort of like Ford power shift, but Volkswagen DSG. I, I think it's better than the DSG. It's, I think it's smoother and better, better launch performance than the DSG. You know, the DSGs are, are good, but um, you know, they, they're a, a little bit sluggish right off the line. And I've always felt like these, these Hyundai DCTs um, just felt a little more responsive right off the line. Huh. All right. I don't. But I that's just my opinion. No, I haven't. I don't think I've driven a Hyundai with the DCT, uh, at least that I can recall. So I will have to defer to your judgment, Sam. Um, so the that's t- always a wise decision. <laughs> it probably is. Uh, <laughs> that turbo engine that we talked about is also uh, what motivates the uh, new Veloster, right? Yeah, um, the, uh, the the second generation Veloster. You know, will look instantly familiar to anybody who's seen the first generation. I mean, it's still got that, you know, kind of funky layout, um, you know, three door layout, um, you know, with an extra door on the passenger side. You know, so it's a little uh, sport coupe hatchback thing uh, with two doors on the passenger side, one on the driver's side. And uh, one of the interesting things that came up in the conversation when we were talking with the Hyundai product planners about it, you know, said, you know, somebody asked, you know, if they would ever consider doing a four door version of it. And they said, yeah, we certainly and we could certainly do it. You know, we, we have the, the stampings for to do it both ways, because for right hand drive markets um, like Japan and Australia and and the UK, you know, they build it you know the opposite way around. So the the single door is on the the right hand side of the car oh, and they, the double doors on the left. They so didn't just cop out like many did with the, the clubman. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, they, they, you know, if they ever felt the need to, they could do a four door version. They could just put the, the UK passenger side on the, you know, on the driver's side on the U S car, if they, if they had that need, but they don't really see a need to do that, you know, cause the back seats are really pretty much occasional seats anyway. You know, it's, it's a, it's a fairly small car, but um, it's, it's a lot of fun to drive. And it's, it's the same, same platform as what you get with the Elantra, the Elantra GT. Um, sport with, you know, the multi-linked rear suspension. So the, you know, one of the complaints about the last generation, the original Veloster, you know, was kind of the ride and handling was not great because it had that twist beam rear axle. And so now, you know, if you get the one six turbo, you get the multi-linked rear suspension, uh, which is a, a much nicer setup. And, you know, this thing is quite nimble, quite quick. Um, you know, it's it's got the one six, but um, in this one, it's got it's rated at 200, 201 horsepower, which is the same as, you know, the Elantra Sport. Elantra GT Sport um, and, you know, the the sportier Kias that also have this. So this this 1.6 Turbo, you know, basically comes in those two configurations, depending on which vehicle it's in, either the 175 or the 201 horsepower. Um, and it's, a, you know, you can get it with the DCT or with a six-speed manual transmission. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun to drive. So... I mean, it's it's definitely an improvement over uh, the last Veloster in um, looks, and it sounds like uh, chassis wise, it is too. Uh, how's their they're making a little bit of hay about their torque vectoring stuff, which I don't think has been a thing in earlier Velosters. 
how did that sort of feel during your drive? Or was it noticeable? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we we didn't, um, you know, where the drive route went, you know, we didn't really have a whole lot of opportunity to really, you know, um, you didn't drive it like an animal. You didn't like fill up on their their lunch and then just like <laughs> go try to crash the car into a tree. No, what kind of a journalist are you? <laughs> Apparently not a very good one. Um, yeah, because like I, I just you know, tor- torque vectoring is a thing that you know often makes me excited. Um, it, it sounds like uh, they're using the brake hardware to to do it. Uh, yeah, it, it it is using the brake hardware. So you know, getting a little bit of you know when you're when you're cornering going into a corner, you know, applying a little bit of brake to the inside front wheel. Um, to help it turn in, you have to put a little bit more yaw moment on the car. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, like I said, you know, I didn't really have an opportunity to push it that hard to really exercise it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, there's, it works fine in other, other similar applications. So I would expect it to, to be fine here. Um, it does, um, you know, the, the cockpit, you know, is set up a little bit different from uh, like the Elantra and, and some of the other ones. So, you know, the center stack is all kind of tilted more towards the driver. You know, so it still has the the display sitting up on top, you know, tablet style. Uh, but then um, it's tilted towards the driver, you know, to give you better access to the controls. Um, and, you know, most of the rest of it will feel fairly familiar. Uh, you know, and it's it's a fun little coupe, and you know, quite reasonably priced. So, how do you think it stacks up between, uh, say, like the GTI and the Civic Civic Si? I guess um, it's like I've heard like chatter on social media that like this could actually be preferable. Yeah, I, 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 you know, um, I think you know it's it, the GTI is a little more powerful um, and uh, more expensive. Uh, so, you know, I think that, um, you know, without driving them back to back, it's hard to say. Um, I think, you know, this is definitely a much better car than the original Veloster. Um, I think when I have a chance to, to spend more time with it, I'll, I'll be able to give you a better idea. Um, but I mean, you know, the GTI is definitely you know, regardless of what Casey thinks about the Golf R, is absolutely <laughs> the best version of the Golf. Uh, um, Casey's not the only one who's wrong. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think it could. You know, I, I think you know the in terms of performance, drivability, it's probably pretty close to to the golf, um, you know, where the golf has an advantage where the GTI has an advantage is just in terms of practicality, you know, it's a little bigger, you know, the back seat is more usable than, than the back seat in the Veloster. Um, you know, this is more, more pure sports coupe, you know, for, it's, you know, for somebody that, you know, is driving either alone or with one passenger most of the time, as opposed to, you know, somebody that might have a, a small kid, um, you know, putting a small kid into a um, into a car seat in the back of the Veloster would definitely be more challenging than doing the same thing in a GTI. Yeah. But you know what? Like uh, nothing, nothing that's easy is. I don't know. I was going to say is worth doing, but that's that's not true. Some things are very easy to do and they're totally worth it. So, <laughs> um, so let's you just know, move I, on. 
And well, you know, the other thing too, you know, you asked about the Civic SI, you know, the, yeah. I think the, the advantage that I think this has over the, the Civic SI is that it is, it's a hatchback. You know, the, the SI is only available as a sedan or a coupe. Um, you know, and I think for a small car, a hatchback is always a better, better option. Um, so, you know, because you, you have that big opening in the back, you know, if you need to, you know, if you, you know, this is for the person that's going to own a vehicle like this, it's probably going to be their, their main vehicle or their only vehicle. Uh, you know, so it's going to more likely to be a daily driver. Uh, as opposed to something you drive on the weekends or, uh, or just a toy and, you know, having the flexibility to do other stuff with it, you know, to make your Ikea runs or, you know, even just to, you know, carry your groceries, having a hatchback, you know, I think is a better option. You, you know, the Civic, you can get the sport, um, and the, the, the hatchback with the sport trim, but that's only 100, 180 horsepower. So you've got 20 more horsepower with this one than you do with the Civic Sport uh, hatchback. Um, so, you know, you've, you've got to make it, if you want to go Civic, you know, and I love the Civic, you know, you've got to make a little bit of a trade-off. Plus, you know, the Civic, uh, you know, the Civic is more practical in other respects. So, I mean, it, it does have a more usable back seat uh, than this thing does. So, you know, it's kind of like you know take a look at it see which one you like better yeah i mean we are embarrassed for choice imagine that yeah and, it's never and that's never a bad thing especially in that that segment all right um questions we had a question we did have a question um let me find it here and go to the inbox so i can actually read it instead of reading it out of the google sheet uh, is that the right one? No, that's not the right one. Never mind that. Um, let's go here. Okay. Uh, in episode 72, uh, it says, uh, we touched on how the small compact crossovers are both, uh, are, are both interior and exterior. Um, it makes me wonder what's the difference between a cross out, crossover and a station wagon. Uh, first I thought it might be the availability of all wheel drive, but then I thought about the CTS wagon that had that and, uh, and that was called a wagon. Uh, then I thought it might be the, uh, appearance of an off-roader, but then, uh, remembered the spark active and the Fiesta active. Uh, as, so this is, this is someone from, uh, from, I think from Europe, um, Jeremy, uh, from Europe, um, cause those particular models aren't sold here. Right. Um, and, uh, so, so what makes a vehicle truly a crossover and not just a four door hatchback, uh, hatch is not a door. You don't use it, uh, to enter or exit the vehicle. Could it just be the fact that Americans don't like the term wagon for some reason? Would you call these vehicles estates? Um, uh, yes, <laughs> essentially a hatchback is what are rather a crossover is whatever a manufacturer decides to call a crossover. You know, if you look at GM, they call the Chevy bolt a crossover. It's not a crossover. It's a, it's a five door hatchback. hatchback. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, yeah. nominally a crossover, you know, um, I mean, there's no hard and fast definition, you know, basically, you know, something that sits a little bit higher has a, a slightly higher hip point than, um, a conventional car. So, you know, uh, getting in and out, you know, you don't have to drop down into the seat as much, you know, as you just kind of slide across, um, you know, beyond that, you know, a lot of crossovers, you know, have some cues that kind of, 
you know, give them a little bit of an off-road look, but, you know, increasingly a lot of them don't either. You know, uh, I mean, you look at something like the, the HRV or, or the Kona um, or the Toyota CHR, you know, and those, excuse me, those certainly don't look like crossover or like, uh, like, you know, off-roaders. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's basically just, you know, if it sits a little bit higher, um, you know, and the other thing about station wagons versus a crossover, um, you know, I mean, crossovers are, if, if crossovers didn't exist, station wagons would probably be the cars that those people would buy. Um, you know, so functionally they're, they're similar, um, you know, station wagons, tend to be a little bit longer in the back. You tend to have a slightly longer, um, you know, cargo area, uh, behind the, behind the rear seats versus a hatchback version. So, I mean, think of, uh, you know, the golf, uh, hatchback versus the golf, uh, station wagon, the golf sport wagon, which was formerly the Jetta sport wagon. Um, you know, they're the same car, but you know, with a couple extra inches on the back, you know, and I kind of like, um, you know, we talked a few months back about Jason Torchinsky's, uh, um, definition of, a, of a station wagon versus a hatchback. Uh, you know, basically if the, the rear glass extends, uh, forward of the, um, the center line of the rear axle, it's a hatchback. Um, or, or maybe it was the roof. If the, the, yeah, the yeah. end of the roof line, uh, comes ahead the of the rear axle, then it's, um, then it's a hatchback. Otherwise it's a station wagon. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, these things are whatever they call them, you know? Yeah. Like, well, that's what I said. I mean, you know, it's whatever, if, whatever, whatever they decide to call a crossover is a crossover. The, the funniest thing is to occasionally like, look at the, the EPA classification for the vehicle. Like I remember probably the, the sort of easiest one to, to recall is the, the Chrysler PT Cruiser was actually classified by the EPA as a truck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which it, it wasn't really. So I'm not sure how they managed to get that one passed, but uh, yeah. I, because, because you could uh, drop the seats out and I think they offered a, a, ver, a version that uh, like the, uh, you know, a van, a cargo oh, version yeah. that didn't have a rear seat or something. Okay, uh, sure. What I mean, it had that yeah. did have that it had that beam axle in the back, so yeah. that it could have a flat load for. Um, fine, I'll buy it. Like it, a lot of this. Well, even even today, you know, um, with utilities, you know, they're you know for cars, you know, you've got small, medium, large cars, you know, for the EPA classifications, and then there's um, light trucks, and then for SUVs they've got two classes of SUVs. There's what they call standard SUVs and small SUVs. And for the um, standard SUVs, they're all they're They all count as light trucks, but for small SUVs, they made an arbitrary decision that small SUVs with four wheel drive or all wheel drive will be classed with light trucks and two wheel drive. Small SUVs will be classed as cars. It would be you know grouped in with cars when they're doing their cafe calculations. So, guess um, you know if you look at the Nissan Pathfinder, you know that's a fairly big three-row crossover. Guess yep. what that is? The Pathfinder. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm gonna say that that's a light truck. 
No, only the all-wheel drive Pathfinder is a light truck because the Pathfinder is actually classed as a small SUV. Okay. The, di- the distinction between small SUV and standard SUV is the gross vehicle weight rating. The so the maximum weight with enormous. a payload. But the Pathfinder's GV- GVW is 5,985 pounds. Anything under 6,000 pounds is an, a small SUV. Wow. If it's over 6,000 pounds, it's a, it's a standard SUV. It's a tax write-off over 6,000 pounds. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, and I'm, sh- I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, um, a Pathfinder could actually support several hundred pounds more than that. But it was just an arbitrary decision. You know, Nissan said, okay, we're not going to allow this. We're, we're only going to rate this up to 59.85. So it's 15 pounds short of the threshold. Um, you know, to make it a small SUV, but you know, now the, um, the Murano, which is quite a bit smaller is actually not an SUV at all. It's classed as a midsize station wagon or a pretty sweet convertible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Um, well, you know, what's interesting is like my impression of the Pathfinder was that it's like a slightly elevated, wagon queen family truckster kind of facsimile it just feels like a big station wagon Um, right exactly which is you know uh, uh, that's why you know you said it's it's whatever a crossover or an suv today is whatever you decide to call it you know so any vehicle can be either one you know the the, you know the the pathfinder is the modern station wagon you know uh modern full-size station wagon yeah whereas um you know uh, you know and Jeremy asked, you know, if it's all wheel drive and, you know, no, it's not. I mean, Toyota calls the CHR a crossover, but at least here in North America, it's only available with front wheel drive. They do an all wheel drive version elsewhere, but here it's front wheel drive only, but it's still a crossover. Yeah, that one's an, that one's an odd one. Um, and it, strangely, it's it's pretty good to drive, um, but you can get, you know, a Grand Cherokee in two wheel drive. It, mm-hmm. So it, it's the same kind of thing, like. But it's a standard SUV, right? Um, yeah, I, I think length has something to do with it. But like at the end of the day, like we're we're kind of giving like opinion based non answers because <laughs> um, it's really all we have. It's it's not yeah, well because it, I mean the, it's the, not a defined I mean, class. It, it literally is the fact that it's whatever a manufacturer decides to call a crossover. That I mean yeah. that. There is no definition of a crossover. Yeah. And, and I think like the biggest stretches are when it gets compact, like when you're down to something like the Bolt or, you know, the, the Buick Encore. Those to me are not crossovers. They're just they're too small. They're too stubby. You know, like those are hatchbacks. Well, you know, the, the Encore, you know, is no different from, um, you know, from the Kona or the um the chevy tracks which is you know on the same platform yeah. as the encore it's the yeah. same size but then i don't think the tracks is i don't know well that. yeah i mean by, by that definition then the, none of these small crossovers are crossovers they're all hatchbacks yeah, I which could, i could support uh, that <laughs> yeah i mean it's, there's definitely an argument to be made for that yeah um you know it's it's not you know it's it's a totally reasonable definition Okay, so we have not helped Jeremy at all. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe we have. Um, well, I mean, we we have to the degree that we've exp- we've explained that you know the whole the whole premise of a crossover is utter nonsense. So what it should mean, though, is that like uh, 
performance crossovers are sports cars because they can be like, you know, uh, X5M, for example. Uh, I I don't know if the, I wouldn't call that a crossover now that I think about it. That's, that's an SUV. Jaguar F-Pace. Sure. Uh, It's still kind (laughs) of an SUV. That's weird. Like there is, now that I think about it, oh, what about the uh, Porsche isn't Ka- there? a Porsche Cayenne GTS? I mean, ah, you know, that's that's more of a sports car than than many so-called sports cars. That 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 is true. Um, I'm trying to think of like, don't they have a version? Doesn't Chevy have a version of the Equinox? It's like their midnight trim or like their red. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't actually have any more performance. It's just an no. appearance package. Yeah, of course. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm trying to. If you you want, if you uh, want more performance in that kind of segment, you know, you got to look at something something like the Edge ST. Right. I was just gonna say Edge ST. There you go. That's a that's a sports car. No, (laughs) I I don't. I don't think. I doubt it. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But you know, then again, you know, you look at something like the Tesla Model X, which is oh, that's just a hunk of shit. Should be called a well. But I mean, you know, based on its based on its configuration, that's a minivan. Not it's or it could be a crossover um, or an SUV. I mean, I think they call it an SUV, Um, you know, but I mean, it'll go zero to 60 in three seconds. So that's a sports car, too. Fine. No, that's that's pro street. That's just like drag race focused because it's (laughs) it can't sustain any kind of high performance use. Uh, I don't know. I, the, the the Model X is just, it's ungainly. It's whatever. <laughs> it's a yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is hideous, but you know, that's a whole other argument. Whole other and you discussion. know, like uh, we don't hate, well, I think we should just say like, I don't want to talk about Tesla this week just because nothing, there's, there's nothing really sort of worth covering that, that we're going to do justice to. If you want to, if you want to hear about Tesla like in depth, go listen to the Autonicast. They're much better at that than than I am, at least. You're, you're probably. Fine. I'll go look at I'll go look at Twitter. Yeah, um, but it, it, none of the actual like Tesla news this week has really been about Tesla. It's been about Elon Musk, and I don't want to talk about Elon Musk. So, all right, moving so on. Let's wrap it up there. Yeah, we're done. Uh, we're done. Yeah, this is episode 74. Uh, we'll come back again soon with episode 75. And <laughs> all right. to that. See you all next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.